Welcome to session nine of the Bible in a Year commentary. If you started this series on the 1st of January, then today should be the 9th of January. Today we'll be looking at Genesis 29 to 31 and Psalm 9. But so far in Genesis, we've seen the creation and fall of humanity as they consistently choose their own way rather than God's way, leading them to wickedness and violence. In response, we saw God leave them to it and choose a family to partner with and journey through what it looks like to live God's way as an example to others. We followed the lives of Abraham and Sarah as they tried to live God's way and watched God's faithfulness to them even when they failed. Abraham had a son Isaac and yesterday we read as Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. But while Jacob is destined to be a leader over his older brother, he still chooses to try and achieve this on his own, tricking Esau out of his birthright and then stealing his father's blessing. But as we saw of Jacob, he was fleeing to his uncle's house for safety and God met with him on the way. Despite Jacob's flaws and failings, God continues to commit himself to him, promising him the same blessing he had offered his grandfather Abraham. And this is where we pick up today. So let's jump in. Genesis 29, 31. In the same way that the servant of Abraham went to their family in the east to find a wife for Isaac, here is Jacob going to his family in the east. Except this time, it wasn't with a camel laden with gifts and isn't strictly to find a wife but to escape the threats of his brother. But just like Abraham's servant, Jacob finds himself at a well. There he meets a woman, and he takes the time to water her flock for her, just as Rebekah had done for the servant back in Genesis 24. This woman turns out to be Jacob's cousin, Rachel, and he quickly falls in love with her. Take a moment to notice this pattern. A man travels to a foreign land, stops at a well, meets a woman. Someone draws water for another. The woman then runs home to tell everyone and eventually becomes a wife. This phrase, this theme is going to come up again. Finally, meeting his uncle Laban, Jacob asks for Rachel's hand in marriage. But in Laban, Jacob has met his match. In the same way that Jacob conned both his brother Esau and his father Isaac, Laban cons Jacob into working seven years for his daughter Rachel, who he then swaps out with his other daughter Leah last minute. Laban then forces Jacob to work another seven years for the wife he originally wanted, but Jacob serves dutifully because of the woman he loves, and eventually he takes both women to be his wife. We then get a long section on the children of Jacob. This bit is important because, one, it sets up the family dynamic that we will see later in Genesis, and two, it sets up the origins of the twelve tribes of Israel. Those that know their Bible know that the greatest tribe was Judah. It was the tribe that King David and all the following kings came from. It was also the tribe that Jesus came from. As we read through this bit, we see that Judah wasn't the firstborn. In this period, normally, the firstborn is considered the most significant. But God wants to make clear that he is in charge and nothing is left to chance. Out of the children of Isaac, rather than choosing the firstborn Esau, God chooses his younger brother Jacob. And then out of the children of Jacob, rather than choosing the firstborn Reuben, he chooses Judah. And as we'll see soon, Joseph. There are also comparisons to Abraham, Sarah and Hagar here. While the Bible makes no suggestion that Bilhah and Zilpah were oppressed or abused, we still have women offering the servants up to carry children. Except here we have twice the amount of wives and servants and just as much, if not more, conflict. The women resort to bartering amongst themselves for the affection of their husbands. We then come back to the conflict between Jacob and Laban who convinces Jacob into agreeing to work six more years for all the speckled, striped and spotted sheep. Except Laban tricks him 
by taking all those sheep and hiding them away, attempting to leave him with nothing. Despite this, God blesses Jacob by causing all the strong newborns to come with speckles, stripes, and spots. Designing there was no way Laban was just going to let him leave, Jacob decides to flee with his family. Laban soon catches up, and after some fierce arguing, two agree to go their separate ways. For 20 years, Jacob the trickster had to experience what it was like to be the one being tricked. So let's look at Psalm 9. This psalm is attributed to King David and fits into the category of lament psalms, though you may not notice it straight away. This is because unlike most lament psalms that begin with a complaint and end with a declaration of trust in God, this psalm does it the other way around. The first half of the psalm is dedicated to praise, and so to begin with it would be easy to mistake this as a praise psalm, but following a chiastic pattern, a structure that mirrors itself, as the psalm reaches its turning point, the psalmist begins to raise their complaint before God. Here is a summary of the structure, but I would recommend checking out the written version of this commentary in the description to see the structure properly. This is particularly true this session because there's going to be two different structures we're going to follow. So we start with verses 1 and 2 with praise. Then in verses 3 and 6, we have God has judged the enemy. And verses 7 to 10, a testimony that God saves the righteous. Then in verse 11, we get some more praise before mirroring ourselves again with verse 12 to 14, a prayer that God will save the psalmist. Verses 15 to 18, God continues to judge the wicked. And verses 19 to 20, prayer for God to intercede. Perhaps the biggest immediate takeaway from the psalm is the evidence that there is no one way you have to pray. In some situations, all you can do is bring your complaint. You're hurting and broken, and it's only after airing all that pain before God that you can bring yourself to declare that God is good. But other times, you might decide before you bring up your complaints that you need to remind yourself of the goodness of God, to put your complaints in their rightful place. It all depends on the situation and where you are and when you come to pray. What's so clever about this psalm is there is a secondary structure that we don't see in the English. This psalm is an acrostic where each section, roughly every two verses, starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so this is what that would look like. We get verses 1 to 2, which start with Aleph, which is to praise God. Verses 3 to 4 start with Beit, all about God is the one that's protected and sustained the psalmist. Verses 5 to 6, we get Gimel, God judges the wicked. Verses 7 to 8 start with Hey, God reigns enthroned over the world. Verses 9 to 10 start with Vav, God protects the oppressed. Verses 11 to 12 start with Zion, praise to God. Verses 13 to 14 start with Hey, a request for God to protect the oppressed. Verses 15 to 16 start with Tet, God's judgment on the wicked. Verses 17 starts with Yod, the wicked shall go to the place of death, forgetting God. Verses 18 to 20 start with Kof, the poor will not be forgotten by God. Interestingly, Psalm 10 continues this across the Quran with the next Hebrew letter, Lamed. 